Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 48. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We're going to walk down memory lane and read from what Steve's dad and my mom wrote about their lives. Steve's dad, Finus Lyles, grew up in the South, but my mother, Carol Chisholm Carey, grew up in Wyoming. We'll begin with Steve reading his dad's memories. The first place I remember was Gainesville, Tennessee, where both my parents taught in public school. They were the only teachers, as there were only two one-room buildings. In one, first through sixth, and the other, 7th through 12th. My father was the pastor of the church, and my mother took me to the classroom with her. We lived there approximately three years. I had my third birthday there. Some of the students rode horses or mules to school. If you blinked your eye as you went by, you'd never know the place was there, as there was one small general store, a sawmill, a church, and school. Between our house and the store was a cow pasture with a pond of water. One day, something scared one of the cows, and it ran into the pond and got stuck in the mud. Men rode out in a boat to attach a harness on the cow so it could be pulled out with a tractor. This was the first time I'd ever seen a crawler tractor. Uncle John McClanahan, no relation, owned everything. He tended the store and drove one of the first glass-enclosed, battery-powered cars. He was in his 80s and could stand on one foot while he placed his other foot behind his neck. (laughs) One day, my father and I went to Mason, a town close by, to purchase our first car, a Model T Ford. This was called a touring car, which had two seats and was open with snap-in windows. Mr. Ford said you could have any color you wanted, as long as it was black. Prior to moving to Gainesville, I was missing one afternoon while we had visitors, and after much searching, I was found under a table with a cloth hanging down, hiding me with a discarded cigar butt of one of the visitors. That may have stunted my growth, as I only grew to six feet, two inches tall. Our next move was by train to Watson, Missouri a larger town located in the northwest corner of the state. We lived there about two years. While traveling, we stayed one night in a hotel in Kansas City near the river. The next morning, our father told us to look at men rowing across the river, playing out a rope, which was to start the construction of an automobile bridge. At that time, the train station in Kansas City was the largest one in the world. Our house in Watson was a two-story with a front porch and a side-back porch with a manually operated water pump. One day while I was on this porch, I was banging on a metal wash tub, and my mother recognized I was banging out a song, Silver Threads Among the Gold, 
which we had heard on our neighbor's crystal radio a few days ago using earphones, which we passed around to each other. One evening, most everyone in town gathered in the streets to watch the aurora borealis stagger across the sky. The city got its ice supply from the river with men of the town sawing large blocks and then loading them on a wagon to be drawn by a team of horses to the ice house and stored in, a sod- in sawdust for use in the summer. The river was about a block from our house and I would often watch this operation. My sisters, Thetis and Thelma, sold magazines to get a two-wheel red scooter as this was the first place we had lived where there was cement sidewalks. About a block in front of our house ran some of the largest steam-powered locomotive engines ever built. Occasionally, these trains would stop to take on water or load grain from large grain elevators. One day, the engineer and fireman let me up into the cab and explained the operations. What a thrill! Trains were a big part of life in America's rural communities and small towns. People waved at the trainmen, and they waved in return. Each week in the summertime, weather permitting, an outdoor silent movie was shown in the city square. People would bring blankets to sit on while watching. On occasion, local cowboys would ride into town and shoot out some of the streetlights. While living here, I saw my first airplane on the ground. The pilot had landed in a wheat field, supposedly with engine problems. The engine was soon repaired, and the pilot took people up for a 15-minute ride as the whole town had turned out to see. The doctor had a German shepherd dog, which he could send to the store, post office, etc. The dog would return with everything untouched and dry. The dog could also be sent for meat, but he would never eat it. My sister Thetis found an old wall clock in an upstairs room, and she got it running, and it ran the entire time we lived there. From Watson, we moved to Baileyton, Alabama, in the autumn of 1927, to a house in the country. This house was owned by a relative of my mother. We lived here about a year, and I had the measles and started first grade. This was a fun place to live, as there was a small brook about a block behind the house where my cousin and I would often walk down a trail among the trees and wildflowers to the brook where we tried to dam it up and make water wheels, etc. A bus passed by our house each morning and returned each evening. People could flag the driver to ride or give him a list of articles to purchase. My father and I flagged the driver one morning and asked him to purchase a wicker basket to carry Charles in. And that evening, we met the bus and got the basket. Charles still has that basket. One Saturday afternoon of each month, the owner of a large store in a city nearby, that's Cullman, would fly over low in his bi-wing plane and throw out ads attached to uninflated balloons. Our final move was a return to our old home place near Odenville, Alabama. Electricity was not available for eight miles or more, so for light, we used kerosene lamps and kerosene lanterns until rural electrification was brought into the rural countryside when I was 20. While growing up, it took all of us working together to survive the Great Financial Depression everyone, including the country, was in. We made our own entertainment when all the chores were completed. Our mother could play the organ, piano, and guitar. 
My sisters could also play the organ and piano. Thetis could also play the violin and accordion. Thelma had a beautiful singing voice and on occasion would sing over one of the local radio stations in Birmingham. I had pets from time to time, a billy goat, calf, dogs, and a white rabbit named Bunsy, which was house-trained and had the run of the house when he was inside. He never forgot if someone mistreated him. After high school, I was away from home in the Civilian Conservation Corp, CCC, commonly referred to as the Three Cs. After being away in the seas for three months, I returned about 2 a.m. in an effort not to disturb anyone. I fell asleep only to be soon awakened by Bunsy jumping over me from side to side. When I spoke to him, he came up to my shoulder and we slept together the rest of the night. The Three C's was a program to assist the family financially. We received $5, and $20 was sent to our family each month. Our camp was located near an army camp, and our rules and clothes were the same, except we repaired local farm machinery. About a month into the Three C's, I was assigned as leader to teach typing and manage the canteen and recreation area. This gave me a raise, so I received $10 and sent $35 home. I found employment with a Birmingham Electric Company, BECO, BECO, as an oiler in one of their generating plants. I worked there until I enlisted into my Uncle Sam's Navy, September 1942. Odenville was some 35 miles from Birmingham, and on occasion, Thelma and I would take the train out home. It was on one of these trips that I installed electric wiring in the house. On December 7, 1941, a Sunday, I was at home outside in the yard when my mother called to me that Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, had been bombed by the Japanese with a surprise sneak attack. The United States was suddenly at war. After three weeks basic training at the U.S. Naval Training Station in San Diego, California, I was transferred to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, to study diesel, both theory and hands-on. I graduated in the top 50 of 300 men. I was then transferred to Mare Island in Vallejo, California, to be assigned to the USS Bushnell, a submarine repair ship. This was a new ship, and it would be three months before sailing out to sea. While at Mare Island, the Lord led me to meet the love of my life, a pretty young lady by the name of Nellie Lorraine Terry. We were introduced by a shipmate, Clarence Baker, and his girlfriend, Eileen Sims. Eileen and Nellie had been friends growing up together. If it was love at first sight, neither of us realized it. But when we started dating, we found we enjoyed each other's company and shared some of the same interests. One Sunday afternoon, while riding in a pedal boat on Lake Merritt, Nellie agreed to marry me. We were married May 25, 1945, in the Foothill Baptist Church in Oakland, California, by Dr. G. Archer Weniger. The Lord has blessed us as a family and guided us. We thank Him for everyone and everything we have. We are looking forward to the Lord's return when we can all be together in heaven.
My mother's story comes by way of a letter she wrote to her granddaughter, Jennifer, who was researching the Depression era for a school project and had asked for her grandma's memories. So this is her response. Dear Jennifer, I should say, this is her response with um, a little bit of deletion on, on my part. Uh, Dear Jennifer, I would have been one year old when the stock market crashed in 1929. We didn't have it as bad as some. They called Texas the Dust Bowl. We went to Toynton, Wyoming one time when I was between four and five. I remember my parents talking about banks that were forced to close. I also remember many buildings looking empty and forlorn. I recall a large piece of burlap hung over the house door to keep the sun and the dust out and to let the air in in the summer. The wind blew so hard and continuously that it blew the soil away from the roots of the grass so it didn't grow very fast again the next spring. The cattle and horses ate one thing that did grow well, and that was death camas, a plant that's related to the lily. The bulb of this plant is poisonous to some animals, including cattle and horses. Many of our horses and cows died. My my brother, Gerald, and I went out to the barn and saw many dead animals lying around. According to the information the Agriculture Department sent my dad, death camas is also poisonous to human beings. It smells something like an onion. Just imagine the fear that gripped my family when my little sister, the youngest, lingered behind Lorraine, Margie, Gerald, and me when we walked the three and a half miles from the school bus stop to the house, and she came home reeking of onions. We checked out the little patch of wild onions she'd found and concluded that they were okay. We were poor, but we always had shoes for school. One summer, Mary and I had to herd the cows barefoot. We turned the milk cows into a small clover patch, then took them to a grass pasture when Mom put a white flag out after about 30 minutes. Some bloated in spite of this. My dad tried to save them by poking a hole in the correct spot in their stomach, or maybe I should say stomachs. I remember a couple of milk cows that we lost were named Cherry and Speck. Back to shoes, our new shoes were always made of leather and were very substantial, but they usually wore blisters under our ankles, at least for a while. Our clothes for the school year were worn at home during the summer, probably because we were outgrowing them. My mother and my oldest sister, Lorraine, sewed a lot of our school clothes. I think the other sister, Margie, sewed for herself and some for Mary. Mom did buy some ready-made things in town, usually on sale. Food was a continuing problem for our parents. My dad butchered hogs, and once in a great while, a beef. The government developed a resettlement program, and we were brought some fresh fruit, mostly grapefruit, also some other things, including spam. I don't need any more of that. Mom canned several hundred quarts of fruit every year, We helped her pick lamb's quarters for greens. She made butter, cottage, and hard cheese when the cows gave enough milk. 
We drank a lot of milk. I couldn't eat or drink the milk products when the cows ate green grass in the spring. Mom also baked all of our bread. It was a real treat when she made Rusk's a German bread, I think. I believe she learned how to make this bread from a lady where she boarded when she was teaching school. It had cinnamon and shortening, probably bacon grease, and raisins sometimes. We had a cellar, so potatoes were purchased in 100-pound bags and stored there. Also a few squash, onions, etc. in the fall. We seldom ate out, but I remember eating at a little hamburger stand in Torrington once. My two older sisters and my brother were in school at Veteran Wyoming, so it was my parents, Mom, uh, my parents, Mary, and me. We went in and sat on stools. We had the five-cent burgers. My dad seemed embarrassed that he couldn't afford the ten-cent burgers. I was impressed that he requested relish on his. I couldn't remember ever having it at home. My parents were able to borrow from the Farm Security Administration to buy some livestock, baled hay, and seed to plant. Grass and crops started growing better toward the end of the Depression era, when the United States was on the verge of the Second World War. I was 13 that year. Mom was able to sell cream then because the cows had better grass and gave more milk. Mary and I got a nickel each when the cream was sold. We felt rich. When I was quite small, I loved to walk the crooked path from the house to the clothesline that went through greasewood as high as I was. Later, I got up early in the morning to pick wild primroses north of our house. The folks told me not to because there could be rattlesnakes there. It would be hard for them to make a warning sound if their rattles were damp from the morning dew. Later, my parents allowed me to pick the flowers, but they warned me to be very careful. At Christmas time, we all had parts in whatever our class was doing for the veterans' school program. People were so poor then, they couldn't buy gas if they had a car that was in working order. The buses ran their usual routes that night and took those who couldn't go otherwise. We each got a sack of candy and nuts from the school. What a treat. One time I stayed overnight with my friend Emma Lou the night of the program. The next morning her mother put my sack in my lunch pail for my lunch and nothing else. My dad had proved up on a homestead of 80 acres a few miles from our home place. The cattle were driven there to graze for the summer sometimes. My older sisters and brother would ride horses over there to check on them. I always wished I could go, too. When we went to town, we would drive by to check on the cows. I always thought it would be fun to live there. In conclusion, she writes, it would take a book to tell all. I hope this will help you. I'm sorry my typing isn't better. I have done very little in years. Just don't let your teacher grade this. Ha! Much love, Grammy. Now continuing in Treasure Island, Chapter 9, Powder and Arms. The Hispaniola lay some way out, and we went under the figureheads and round the sterns of many other ships, and their cables sometimes grated underneath our keel and sometimes swung above us. At last, however, we got alongside and were met and saluted as we stopped aboard by the mate, Mr. Arrow, a brown old sailor with earrings in his ears and a squint. 
He and the squire were very thick and friendly, but I soon observed that things were not the same between Mr. Trelawney and the captain. This last was a sharp-looking man who seemed angry with everything on board, and was soon to tell us why, for we had hardly got down into the cabin when a sailor followed us. Captain Smollett, sir, axing to speak with you, said he. I am always at the captain's orders. Show him in, said the squire. The captain, who was close behind his messenger, entered at once and shut the door behind him. Well, Captain Smollett, what have you to say? All well, I hope. All shipshape and seaworthy? Well, sir, said the captain, better speak plain, I believe, even at the risk of offense. I don't like this cruise, I don't like the men, and I don't like my officer. That's short and sweet. Perhaps, sir, you don't like the ship? inquired the, the squire, very angry, as I could see. I can't speak as to that, sir, not having seen her tried, said the captain. She seems a clever craft. More, I can't say. Possibly, sir. You may not like your employer either, says the squire. But here, Dr. Livesey cut in. Stay a bit, said he, stay a bit. No use of such questions as that, but to produce ill feelings. The captain has said too much, or he has said too little, and I'm bound to say that I require an explanation of his words. You don't, you say, like this cruise. Now, why? I was engaged, sir, on what we call sealed orders to sail this ship for that gentleman where he should bid me, said the captain. So far, so good. But now I find that every man before the mast knows more than I do. I don't call that fair now, do you? No, said Dr. Livesey. I don't. Next, said the captain, I learn we are going after treasure. Hear it from my own hands, mind you. Now treasure is ticklish work. I don't like treasure voyages on any account, and I don't like them above all when they are secret and when, begging your pardon, Mr. Trelawney, the secret has been told to the parrot. Silver's parrot? asked the squire. It's a way of speaking, said the captain. Blabbed, I mean. It's my belief neither of you gentlemen know what you are about. But I'll tell you my way of it. Life or death and a close run. That is all clear and, I dare say, true enough, replied Dr. Livesey. We take the risk, but we are not so ignorant as you believe us. Next, you say you don't like the crew. Are they not good seamen? I don't like them, sir, returned Captain Smollett. And I think I should have had the choosing of my own hands, if you go that. Perhaps you should, replied the doctor. My friend should, perhaps, have taken you along with him. But the slight, if there be one, was unintentional. And you don't like Mr. Arrow? I don't, sir. I believe he's a good seaman, but he's too free with the crew to be a good officer. A mate should keep himself to himself. Shouldn't drink with the men before the mast. Do you mean he, do you mean he drinks? cried the squire. No, sir, replied the captain, only that he's too familiar. Well, now, and the short and long of it, captain? asked the doctor. Tell us what you want. Well, gentlemen, are you de determined to go on this cruise? Like iron, answered the squire. Very good, said the captain. 
Then, as you've heard me very patiently, saying things that I could not prove, hear me a few words more. They are putting the powder and arms in the forehold. Now you have a good place under the cabin. Why not put them there? First point. Then you are bringing four of your own people with you, and they tell me some of them are to be berthed forward. Why not give them the berths here beside the cabin? Second point. Any more? asked Mr. Trelawney. One more, said the captain. There's been too much blabbing already. Far too much, agreed the doctor. I'll tell you what I've heard myself, continued Captain Smollett, that you have a map of an island, that there's crosses on the map to show where the treasure is, and that the island lies, and then he named the latitude and longitude exactly. I never told that, cried the squire. To a soul. The hands know it, sir, returned the captain. Levisy, that must have been you or Hawkins, cried the squire. It doesn't much matter who it was, replied the doctor, and I could see that neither he nor the captain paid much regard to Mr. Trelawney's protestations. Neither did I, to be sure. He was so loose a talker, yet in this case I believe he was really right and that nobody had told the situation of the island. Well, gentlemen, continued the captain, I don't know who has this map, but I make it a point. It shall be kept secret even from me and Mr. Arrow. Otherwise, I would ask you to let me resign. I see, said the doctor. You wish us to keep this matter dark and to make a garrison of the stern part of the ship, manned with my friend's own people and provided with all the arms and powder on board. In other words, you fear a mutiny. Sir, said Captain Smollett, with no intention to take offense, I deny your right to put words into my mouth. No, Captain, sir, would be justified in going to sea at all if he had ground enough to say that. As for Mr. Arrow, I believe him thoroughly honest. Some of the men are the same. All may be for what I know but I am responsible for the ship's safety and the life of every man jack aboard of her. I see things going, as I think, not quite right, and I ask you to take certain precautions or let me resign my berth, and that's all. Captain Smollett, began the doctor with a smile, did ever you hear the fable of the mountain and the mouse? You'll excuse me, dare say, but you remind me of that fable. When you came in here, I'll stake my wig. You meant more than this. Doctor, said the captain, you are smart. When I came in here, I meant to get discharged. I had no thought that Mr. Trelawney would hear a word. No more I would, cried the squire. Had Levisy not been here, I should have seen you to the deuce. As it is, I have heard you. I will do as you desire, but I think the worse of you. That's as you please, sir, said the captain. You'll find I do my duty. And with that, he took his leave. Trelawney, said the doctor, contrary to all my notions, I believe you have managed to get two honest men on board with you, that man and John Silver. Silver, if you like, cried the squire. But as for that intolerable humbug, I declare I think his conduct unmanly, unsailorly, and downright un-English. Well, says the doctor, we shall see.
When we came on deck, the men had begun already to take out the arms and powder, yo-hoing at their work, while the captain and Mr. Arrow stood by, superintending. The new arrangement was quite to my liking. The whole schooner had been overhauled. Six berths had been made astern, out of what had been the after part of the main hold, and this set of cabins was only joined to the galley and forecastle by a sparred passage on the port side. It had been originally meant that the captain, Mr. Arrow, Hunter, Joyce, the doctor, and the squire were to occupy these six berths. Now, Redruth and I were to get two of them, and Mr. Arrow and the captain were to sleep on deck in the companion, which had been enlarged on each side till you might almost have called it a roundhouse. Very low it was still, of course, but there was room to swing two hammocks, and even the mate seemed pleased with the arrangement. Even he, perhaps, had been doubtful as to the crew, but that is only guess, for as you shall hear, we had not long the benefit of his opinion. We were all hard at work changing the powder and the berths when the last man or two, and Long John along with them, came off in a shore boat. The cook came up the side like a monkey for cleverness, and as soon as he saw what was doing, So ho, mates, says he, what's this? We're a changing of the powder, Jack, answers one. Why, by the powers, cried Long John, if we do, we'll miss the morning tide. My orders, said the captain shortly. You may go below, my man. Hands will want supper. Aye, aye, sir, answered the cook, and touching his forelock, he disappeared at once in the direction of his galley. That's a good man, captain, said the doctor. Very likely, sir, replied Captain Smollett. Easy with that, man, easy. He ran on to the fellows who were shifting the powder, and then suddenly observing me examining the swivel we carried amidships, a long brass nine. Here, you ship's boy, he cried. Out of that. Off with you to the cook and get some work. And then, as I was hurrying off, I heard him say quite loudly to the doctor, I'll have no favorites on my ship. I assure you I was quite of the squire's way of thinking and hated the captain deeply. Chapter 12 of Winds of Wyoming After breakfast, Kate and Clint and two of the men she'd met her first morning at the ranch, Tanner and Darrell, gathered shovels, manure forks, and rakes from the barn before approaching the big manure stack behind the barn. Heat emanated from the pile. Kate studied the mound. It doesn't smell as bad as I thought it would. Clint stabbed his fork into the ground. We turn it with a tractor fork twice a week. That helps the mixture get enough oxygen to decompose. Also, it's important to move material from the outside of the pile to the center, where it's hot enough to kill bacteria, bugs, weed seeds, stuff like that. Tanner, a short man with broad, muscular shoulders, looked at Clint. How do you want to tackle this? He adjusted the brim of his hat. Clint pointed at two wheelbarrows propped against the barn. How about you and Daryl load up the wheelbarrows? You can dump the compost randomly in the garden. Kate and I will spread it around. 
Tanner raised his eyebrows. You and Kate, huh? Daryl grunted. He and Rusty get all the broads. Kate studied Daryl. He's a scrawny kid, probably not more than 18 or 19 years old. She'd been called worse names, far worse names. But something in his voice said he didn't have a high regard for women. Clint squinted at Daryl. Watch your mouth. Though Daryl looked ready to retort, Clint kept talking. When you get tired, we'll switch. After we put down a couple inches, we'll use a tiller to mix it into the ground. But Daryl did not look happy. How come we're moving horse pucky again? Kate wondered if he was always so whiny. He reminded her of more than one woman she'd met behind bars. Tanner elbowed him. It's a cycle of life thing, bucko. We feed the animals, they eat the food, and poop it out and poop out the leftovers. We till it into the soil so we can grow vegetables to give us strength to pitch hay to the animals so they can make fertilizer for the garden. Daryl walked over to a wheelbarrow propped against the barn wall and grabbed it by the handles. If I'd known Mrs. D wanted it on the garden, I would have tossed it there in the first place. He rolled the wheelbarrow to the pile. Tanner chuckled. You can't scoop manure straight onto a garden. It'll burn up the plants. It has to sit for weeks, sometimes months, to turn into compost. Just think of it this way, Clint said. He tossed a shovel full of compost into the wheelbarrow. We're the most important workers on this ranch right now, doing the most important job. Well, that's a bunch of... Daryl pointed at the manure mound. And I'm not buying it, he glared at Clint. I won't get no purple heart for hauling manure. Besides, I hate vegetables. My grandma made me eat way too many Brussels sprouts. Tanner thrust a fork into the compost heap. I hear the vice president is coming to Wyoming to fish next month. Maybe he'll give you that purple heart. Funny, man, funny. As far as Kate could tell, Tanner and Clint were teasing Daryl, but the kid didn't seem to have much of a sense of humor. She and Clint helped fill the wheelbarrow before carrying rakes to the garden. They passed the corral, where Kate stopped to stroke Trudy. The calf's sad balls, when she left, made her feel bad. Later, the four of them rested in the gazebo and drank ice water Kate brought from her cabin. Clint wiped his brow. The garden seems a lot bigger this year. Yeah, and we're not even half done, Daryl plunked his glass down on the bench seat. I get all the junk jobs around here. I'll probably get stuck with a bunch of bratty kids on the hayride tomorrow. Kate stared at him, thinking he sounded like a three-year-old. He had told her this was his second summer to work at the WP. Surely he knew the routine by now. What did he expect? To be treated like one of the guests? That's enough. Clint's voice was sharp. Gerald shot upright and he stomped out of the gazebo, but pivoted for a final retort. Just because you lowered yourself to peon status so you could hang around the new broad doesn't mean you can. Clint sprang to his feet. Daryl took off running, Clint not far behind him. Tanner, who'd also jumped up, sat back down. They can duke it out without me. He took off his hat and fanned his face with it. Sorry about the way the kid talks. He's a hothead. I doubt he'll last the summer. In fact, I was surprised the Duncans brought him back this year after all the trouble he caused last season. He offered a wry smile, but you know, Mrs. D, she's a real softy. Dale's dad abandoned the family, so they're probably in a bad way financially. When Kate returned from taking the tray of glasses to her cabin, she was surprised to see all three men hard at work. 
She hurried to the manure pile to help Clint load a wheelbarrow. He stopped shoveling. Sorry about that, Kate. He motioned toward the garden where Tanner and Daryl were working. He tends to step out of line once in a while. I shouldn't let him get under my skin. How'd you get him to come back? I don't see bruises on either of you. Clint dug into the mound again. I threatened his job. After I cornered him. He knows all I have to do is say the word and the Duncans will fire him. That settled him down, though he's probably still fuming. Rumor has it he has a hard time keeping a job. Uh, no surprise. Clint leaned on his shovel. Actually, he had me figured right when he said I wanted to spend time with you. I've been hoping for a chance to ask you something. She watched his face, bracing herself. What had he heard about her past? The Wild Bunch Saloon down in Encampment has line dancing on Friday nights. Would you like to go with me tonight? She tried to hide her surprise. Why did she always expect the worst? She smiled. I've never line danced, but I've seen it on TV. It looks complicated. It's not that hard. Besides, if you mess up, nobody cares. Everyone is there to have a good time. And if you can tear yourself away from Cyrus's cooking, I know where we can get a real good steak on the way. Sounds wonderful. She might hear about it from Cyrus, but she was a free woman now, who could eat anywhere she wanted. Where is encampment? It's northeast of here, opposite the direction to Copperville, around 25, 30 miles from the ranch. Oh, good. I'll get to see the other side of the mountain. And Ramsey would not be there. Here's a quote from Kurt Vonnegut. Go into the arts. I'm not kidding. The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way of making life more bearable. Practicing an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow, for heaven's sake. Sing in the shower, dance to the radio, tell stories, write a poem to a friend, even a lousy poem. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward you will have created something. Kurt Vonnegut. That's going to end our podcast. Bye. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.